All right. Um, so this is uh, this is unabashed gaming session thirteen. Mm-hmm. Thirteen. Part two of matching genres of systems. My name is David Shim. I'm David Larkins. And thank you for listening tonight. Um, yeah. So continuation of two weeks ago since we took that break. Yes, we're back. Yeah. Um, gosh, we uh, we covered a, a fair bit of systems last time. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know. There's always more. I guess that should be a uh, should be like a uh, saying or like a motto with with uh, RPGs that there's always there's more. There's always more. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Especially when you're talking about uh, systems like GURPS. Yeah, which can do just about anything under the sun, and even things that you can't really think of, like <laughs> subterranean. You want to <laughs> you want to run games about mole people? You can totally do it in GURPS. <laughs> yeah, um, I think we we, we were touched on GURPS a little bit last time. Yeah, but, we um, uh, we touched a little on the the uh, I think we did sci-fi aspects, and we talked a little bit about the uh, Tales of the Solar Patrol game that you ran. Yeah, yeah. And um, I think I may have admitted to running something in GURPS mm-hmm. and ignoring all of the rules entirely. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. not really running GURPS at all. Yeah, I mean, some would argue that does defeat the purpose. Yeah, I guess I can say that I can't. I haven't actually run GURPS because I didn't really run GURPS that time. They had the character sheets in front of them, but they just didn't realize I wasn't using the system. <laughs> well, you know, I've heard of people who run uh, Pathfinder, but behind the screen they just use like basic D and D. So you know. Well, you you don't necessarily have to run the exact same system yeah, that your players true. are playing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, well you know, with Pathfinder, it's very uh, it's very transferable between the uh, between the D and Ds, or at least the three point and the three point fives. Yeah. But um, I don't know. Maybe they're uh, maybe they're also running like some A D and D in the background. I don't think fourth edition would translate very well to Pathfinder. No, that that would be trickier. Yeah, and. I think one day we'll have to tell the story of when you played a and d game that had every edition oh, at the same table. So. I played it for like 15 minutes and <laughs> left. It wasn't, it's not much of a story. It wasn't much of a blog post. <laughs> no. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, at any rate, I just wanted to um, touch on, get back to GURPS briefly before we get back into our, our genre-specific uh, discussion. Mm. One last word on it. Which is that um, I have a very long and complicated relationship with the system in that I keep wanting to run it, uh, um, but then I get in way over my head because there's so much material for it. Right. And so the, the metaphor that I've seen is that GURPS is like a cow and you don't try to eat a whole cow at once. You take choice cuts. And I always try to eat the whole cow. Ah, uh, yeah. So that's my problem there. And um, so that kind of... Uh, is the argument I think in favor of games that are more focused on certain genres, mm-hmm. perhaps, uh, and it's one of the reasons why I could never really sell GURPS to my old groups. Oh, definitely. Because they would just say, "Why don't we play game X instead of GURPS?" Right. Why buy the cow when you can get the sex for free? I mm-hmm. think I think that's the line. And something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, on the other hand, that's something I love about GURPS because there's so much material for it. Uh, you can really dive in. So and I still use uh, GURPS source books for general reference. Yeah, I mean with the uh, with a great variety of books that it has released, you know, there's there's a bunch of fluff you can pull out of it, and mm-hmm. not necessarily the crunch. But mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's there's books that I take for, or there's like stuff that I take from the four ebooks that mm-hmm. I would never ever run again. Mm-hmm. And now that I've said that, I'll probably be running four e in like four months, and like <laughs> right. hating every minute. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, be careful what you. For. Yeah. Be careful what you spite. It might turn around and spite you back. Oh, nice. I like that. Uh, 
Uh, so anyway, we kind of left off uh, more or less arbitrarily. So our next uh, genre that we were going to discuss was post-apocalyptic. Indeed. Mm-hmm. And I see that our first listing there is BRP, which, I mean, BRP is... Um, it's sort of like GURPS, but just much less detail in with it. Yeah. It sort of gives you the options to run just about anything. Yeah. And I have run a uh, post-apocalyptic, quote-unquote, um, BRP campaign where... Uh, you know, it's easily transferable. You know, the great thing about a uh, great thing about most RPGs really is that you know they they give you a bestiary, and if it's not all encompassing, you just take one monster and you change its name mm-hmm. and you change what it looks like, mm-hmm. and you know who knows, maybe that tiger can become like a velociraptor without anyone really knowing about it, right? Uh, until you admit it to your players, and then they you know they curse you and hate you for you know cheapening their experience (laughs) so don't admit it to your players exactly just admit it to everyone listening to this podcast which (laughs) happened to be my players hi guys (laughs) yeah but no brp is interesting because it it takes a similar tactic groups in that it tends to veer more towards the kind of uh, uh, gritty or brutal combats and quick character deaths if you're not careful Mm. but um it doesn't uh, doesn't seem to have as much material as GURPS. Yeah. You know, it's not as um, obsessed with sort of um, um, talking about everything. Right. It's sort yeah. of like what you're saying there. It's like saying, oh, no, yeah, you can just kind of do whatever you want, really. Yeah, you can sort of, you can tool or game the system however you really like. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you, can, you can take a bunch of stuff out of BRP or, I mean, I, you can take a bunch of stuff out of a lot of gaming systems, mm-hmm. but... BRP can run pretty well if it's just used as a storytelling mechanism with occasional rolls. Yeah. Those uh, those percentages you can you can come up with those on the fly, guys. They're yeah. really easy. It's you pick a number between one and a hundred. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and um, there's a there's a good worked example of BRP as a post-apocalyptic game, which is called Rubble and Ruin. Mm. Uh, now that I'm talking about it, I'm not sure if it's still available. I th- think I may have a PDF of it. Yeah. 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 Um, it was sort of a monograph um, that was put out, you know, through Chaosium. So it was an official product. Right. Um, but yeah, really cool uh, take on, you know, sort of your Mad Max style post-apocalyptic stuff. You know, r- rules for barter and definitely scrounging and uh, mutants and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think I picked it up because it was very similar to the uh, the Fallout setting, which mm. I'm blatantly in love with on my blog. And um, yeah, I was going to try to do a BRP conversion of that because mm. the uh, the base system of it, with it for anyone who's familiar with Fallout is is a basically a percentile system mm. so you know you, you can just work from there and you know the transitions aren't too difficult yeah but then at the same time there's the fallout pen and paper game which um the less spoken of it the better because people tend to get sued um bethesda <laughs> yeah you guys are you guys are cool bethesda i won't say anything bad about you <laughs> you're, you're awesome well the weird thing is that fallout originally was going to be based on gurps yeah that's right mm-hmm. so I uh, forgot the details of why that didn't go through, like who who backed out or why, but um, that would have been interesting. Yeah, I remember reading a little bit about it. I um, in my heydays of uh, mm. of going to trolling Fallout fan sites, and <laughs> yeah, there's like yeah, there's actual like pictures of like the Fallout splash screen where it's you know S- Steve Jackson's GURPS. Wow. Or, yeah, <laughs> it's but um, I don't know. I think maybe he pulled out because yeah. 
I don't know, maybe he was like creating his own system and didn't want to didn't want to license the rights, and so yeah, Interplay just had to come up with their own. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how. Uh, that's sort of like the rise and fall of Black Isle Studios. May mm. they rest in peace. <laughs> Anyway, so then we've got um, Savage Worlds, which I think is another uh, well-suited system for post-apocalyptic play. I really like the concept of, of using Savage Worlds for post-apoc because, like uh, like with Deadlands, which is, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, five minutes before the apocalypse, mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have that pulpy feeling. Everything moves really swiftly. You don't get bogged down in combat very much because you have the option for, you know, just minions and wild cards. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've got that whole, you know, trudging through a bunch of bad guys until you reach someone who actually knows what they're doing or mm-hmm. is kind of important to the, the script or the plot. Yeah. So that kind of, um, you know, that kind of gives you that little, like, bit of, like, Mad Max or, you know, other sorts of post-apocalyptic settings that, you know, aren't Mad Max feel <laughs> to it. Like, uh, well, like, you could do something inspired by, like, say, Tank Girl. Yeah, exactly. You know, really well with uh, Savage World. Something a little more high action. Right. Uh, with BRP, you know, or GURPS, you know, you could do a uh, real, you know, pretty dark, yeah. you know, campaign, like real scrounging kind of, yeah. you know, survival Definitely. oriented. Whereas Savage World, I think, is more appropriate for, yeah, like just kind of cool big guns and your mutant sidekick and you know you're, you're doing cool shit yeah definitely and you know those are those are both viable flavors and there's there's even more there's there's a myriad of flavors that you can use for post-apocalyptic yeah and there's really no right one <laughs> i mean unless you're like going for a specific system and then yeah there's there's totally a right one yeah. which i uh i guess now is the time probably to plug savage fallout okay which Plug um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to trying to run at least. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a fan made system that hasn't updated since like September of 2013. Oh, but um, they've got a lot of crunch for it. They've already released like a player's guide and a keeper's guide for it. Wow, which they call like the overseer's guide and the player's handbook or survival handbook, whatever it is. How cool! But um, yeah, all free to download. Very cool. Um, cool. Yeah, it's just uh, wow. yeah, I'm I'm interested in running it because. I really like the setting. Yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and then, you know, there are some classic uh, post-apocalyptic titles. Um, this is definitely one of those genres that I think is sort of cyclical, and so it had a, it had a heyday back in the 80s, obviously. Right. Because, you know, that was sort of final gasp of the Cold War. And so you had a game called Twilight 2000, which was basically... One of those sort of narrow focus games where almost like Pendragon in a way where it's like the basic setup is you are NATO troops mm-hmm. in Eastern Europe when the nukes start to fly. Oh. And it's sort of a limited nuclear war. Like it, it you know, everything kind of shuts down before it can really snowball into total apocalypse. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, communications are down, infrastructure's breaking down, and you're just trying to get back to you know, Western Europe, basically, okay. and, and some perception of safety. Right. You know, uh, and so it's it's very much just kind of a, you know, survival post-apocalyptic game where you're, you know, you're all soldiers, and you so you've got some good equipment and stuff, but, Definitely. you know, you're kind of going up against not really knowing what, you know, is going to be over the next horizon, basically. Right. It sounds pretty open-ended. Like they It's can... very open-ended, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there were other supplements that kind of you know, opened up the concepts more. So there was, you know, a United States supplement, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, various other things, you know. But it was all, like, done in sort of a way to try and make it as realistic as possible, you know. Definitely. So, 
And then the Morrow Project, um, I actually don't know a whole lot about other than the fact that it's kind of notorious for being a, a really uh, complex sort of simulationist right. uh, system. But that's it's sort of in the same vein as Fallout where um, you play characters who are in some kind of uh, stasis, mm. like cryo-freeze or something to that effect. And you, and you come out of your cryo-freeze and... Uh, find out that you know there's been a nuclear war at some point in the past and okay you're kind of just trying to explore the world and figure out what's going on right i wouldn't be surprised if the you know fallout kind of uh you know owed some uh, inspiration to that game maybe i would imagine so yeah yeah. um and then uh you know of course you've got kind of the the other end of it with the sort of gonzo post-apocalyptic stuff like gamma world or rifts um, but those are almost more like science fantasy. Right. I mean, the, the post-apocalyptic element is there, but that's kind of the conceit for like how the world became the way it is now, but you're mostly just concerned with how the world is now. Right. You know, uh, the uh, analogy I actually came up with the other day was, you know, calling something like Gamma World or Rifts post-apocalyptic would be like running a... a game set in the middle ages and calling it post-roman you know it's like well yeah you're you're coming out of this previous civilization that's collapsed but it was so long ago that new societies have sprung up in the meantime you know so there's there's callbacks to those previous civilizations and maybe those previous civilizations are held up as ideals Mm -hmm. but everyone's kind of moved on really right (laughs) you know so uh, but there's an interesting uh, kickstarter going on right now called Breach World, uh, which I just want to plug because that's uh, using uh, D6 system, which uh, is a cool dice pool system that was um, used to be more common because it was the original Star Wars RPG um, system. Mm. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's uh, being put on by Jason Richards, who has done freelance work for Rifts, and it's very Rifts-esque. Uh, but, you know, speaking of <coughs> su- uh, lawsuit-happy companies, right. Palladium Books is one of those. And um, so there's not a whole lot of, like, Rifts fan material out there. And so Breach World hopefully will be a way to kind of have a Rifts-like experience. Definitely. Without the legal implications thereof. Ah, uh, yes. And then, of course, uh, there's another one these days uh, called Apocalypse World. Apocalypse World. Mm-hmm. Another one I... I sadly have no experience with. I've only heard anecdotes. Yeah. Where Apocalypse World is a game that makes Cards Against Humanity players blush. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I very much want to try that. Um, you know, of course, we've talked about Dungeon World here before, and and so we're both fans of the of the sort of core system. Definitely. But yeah, Apocalypse World is supposed to be pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, I hear it's a, a quite the sizable source book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, uh, it could herald, like, the return of post-apocalyptic as a, as a setting here. Yeah. Um, it's definitely carved out a niche for itself, so. Anyway. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on it and see where it develops. Mm-hmm. But somewhat related to post-apocalyptic is the genre of cyberpunk. Ah, uh, cyberpunk. Ah, <laughs> uh, now that is a... Uh... That's the genre where it, it's kind of like my uh, it's kind of like my questing beast actually you oh, might call it. Nice. I've never actually run it. <laughs> I keep getting drawn into the setting through either media or let's plays mm. or like someone sending me this really interesting like techno chiptune track that I'm just like oh my god that is that is cyberpunk right there. Right. Right. So, um, but I am um, I am currently reading through the uh, the Shadowrun fifth 
edition mm. um, rule set. Latest edition, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, it's it's quite the interesting uh, read through. I'm um, yeah. like, there's also the uh, the Shadowrun Returns video game. I'm watching let's plays of, and uh. the setting is just really kind of cool. You know, sort of. Not exactly post-apocalyptic, but sort of mm-hmm. at the same time. You know, there's the reintroduction of magic, which is kind of a cool, f- like kind of a cool flavor for it. But mm-hmm. I guess at the same time, it kind of pisses off some purists at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which you know, whatever. I mean, the 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 fact of the matter is that Shadowrun, I think, is hands down the most popular cyberpunk RPG. Oh, absolutely. Because people love their genre mashups. Yeah. And that goes well back before you know zombie Marvel heroes and everything else. I mean, this this game's um, God, twenty five years old at this point. It's been around since eighty nine. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey, gaming system that I'm older than. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, and, of course, that's something I've heard about earlier editions, um, is that uh, it was kind of unplayable in mm. its first and second editions. Uh. But I've heard good things about fifth. And uh, I actually owned, I think, the third edition. Mm. I bought it in Seattle, which was appropriate, since yeah. that's sort of the default city. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, yeah, my, my cyberpunk game was Cyberpunk 2020, mm. which was kind of the first cyberpunk RPG... Uh, that's your purest RPG, if you if you prefer. Ah, uh, okay. Um, that's actually the second edition. The first edition was called Cyberpunk, mm-hmm. and was set in 2015. Uh huh. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And then Cyberpunk, and that came out in like '88, I think. Yeah. How are we? Uh, how are we living up to uh, Cyberpunk 2015? Oh, you know that would be really interesting to go back. I I, I know the Soviet Union was still around. Oh, okay. In, in their alternate timeline. Well, you know they might be coming back. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> <laughs> right, they pressed the button, yeah, and, uh, and all of a sudden, yeah, the sign flipped. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. We, we still got a year here. So yeah, exactly. That was right. Uh, there were also uh, orbital space stations that could launch uh, giant boulders, you know, as as sort of um, non-nuclear uh, thermonuclear missiles. All right. Well, you know? we uh, yeah, we do have that uh, that Call of Duty game where the the uh, what is it the the tungsten rods oh, yeah, that uh, yeah. yeah like the uh, the Zeus's hammer or whatever it's yep, called. Yeah. So. And I think there was a moon base, but uh, other than that, we're pretty close. Yeah, uh, <laughs> definitely. We've got mega corporations and uh, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I don't. We don't have cyber arms yet, though, so that's unfortunate. Uh, but uh, anyway, there was Cyberpunk 2020. Then there was another edition called Cyber Generation, which was uh, an interesting take on things, where it was like you played. Basically, in Cyberpunk 2020, your sort of default character was an edge runner, mm. and they were sort of assumed to be 20-somethings who, you know, were like, fuck the system, and, you know, we're going to take it down, and yada, yada. And Cyber Generation, you're playing, like, kind of the next youngest generation, mm. the 15- and 16-year-olds, who have come of age in this new world and completely embrace it and accept it. Oh, okay. But at the same time, you know... In so doing, they kind of subvert it at the same time, you know? Oh. Uh, and there's all kinds of weird cyber tech and stuff. And then there was an unfortunate uh, lapse with the third edition of Cyberpunk, which came out about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they then tried to advance the timeline again and kind of keep the technology uh, curve going, like in terms of getting into like transhumanism and nanotechnology and all that kind of stuff, which yeah. is all well and good. But for whatever reason, uh, you know, the the author of the Cyberpunk games is named Mike Pondsmith, and he's like one of the legends of the gaming world. Mm. But he made a very strange decision with the interior art and layout of 3rd Edition where he used 
like mega or what what do they call the the um, sort of five inch tall posable action figures? Oh, you know the they're sort of collectibles and they have the articulated joints and everything. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> he, he used those. He used those and dressed dressed them in like you know cyberpunk outfits and photographed them and that was the interior art. That's. That's a way to go. It was it was definitely a bold decision, and it did not pay off. Um, so, <laughs> I can see that working today. <laughs> yeah, you know he is he has traditionally been ahead of his time. Yeah. So, uh, he also wrote an amazing um, mecha RPG called Nekton Z. Mm. Uh, but um, you know, so he was he was ahead on the anime curve too. You know, but um, anyway, that kind of touches on to me the the issue of cyberpunk which is are you going to try not the doll thing but the technology thing right are you going to try and keep it current mm-hmm. because originally cyberpunk in the 80s was part of the thrill was like wow this is stuff that could happen tomorrow you know sort of thing like it wasn't just speculative it was like no no this is like there's this thing called the internet and soon everyone's going to be using it you know and, and we're going to plug it into our brains and, and you know experience it in three dimensions you know yeah um so it's like, do you try and maintain that kind of relevancy, mm. or do you treat cyberpunk in the same way that I, you know, ran my Tales of the Solar Patrol campaign, mm-hmm. which was like a retro, you know, like when they were doing Buck Rogers in the '30s, yeah, they thought that was going to be the future, right? You know, people living on the moon and rocket ships zooming around and laser guns and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and now the appeal of it is like, oh, it's sort of quaintly, charmingly retro, you know. Yeah. So is cyberpunk occupying that same uh, position? And I don't know. I mean, yeah, what is what does the new Shadowrun look like to you? Uh, the new Shadowrun's kind of uh, it's kind of fun. I mean, mm-hmm. um, or it's sort of funny in in the fact that you know the, it seems like with the last few settings with fourth edition, I think they started really getting into the concept of wireless, mm-hmm. um, like wireless hacking. Mm-hmm. You know, Deckers using. Um, Using their own, you know, sort of quote unquote cell phones to mm-hmm. uh, to get into the yeah right yeah, to like get into rem- the, remotes and that kind of thing yeah, yeah. and so they, they hacked into the matrix and I, it tickles me that they call it the matrix right right you know that way yeah um but it's sort of funny um I've uh, reading through the fifth edition source book it seems like they're really uh, they're trying to bring back some of like the decks like the cyber decks. Because those are those are kind of like iconic to the iconic, system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're they're coming up with like story reasons to sort of bring those back. Mm. Um, I think the uh, I think like the really only problem with uh, with like creating new cyberpunk is that we're sort of like at the point in our technology where we're not really sure what's going to happen next because we already um, in the initial um, Shadowrun and you know other cyberpunks we already envisioned you know people injecting their personalities and brains mm-hmm. into full-on virtual reality simulation mm-hmm. and we're not really sure where like now that we're getting closer to it we've you know we're, we're creating easier access to it mm-hmm. but at the same time we're not really sure what like the next step is because right now like our technology isn't at the point where we're dreaming about it it's where we're you know we're creating like the oculus rift or like Sony is making the the uh, the headset for the PlayStation Four, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Um, Google Glass and all that. Yeah, yeah, so we're yeah. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, I I can't think of like the next big thing in technology, and I imagine it's difficult for for these writers to do so. So it yeah. seems like yeah, instead of progressing, they're sort of regressing a little bit back to uh, to grab the nostalgia, to grab yeah. you know those those flavors from the original settings, which I, I kind of like. I mean. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's it's sort of hard to have Shadowrun without like cyber decks. Yeah, right. And yeah. and yeah, I mean, there, there's sort of a retro charm to it, and it still allows you to explore, you know, issues that are relevant today, as we were sort of, you know joking about there in terms of mega corporations and and you know concepts of personhood and you know um, technology and alienation from technology you yeah. can still explore all those themes which feel very relevant today but you know have mirror shades and uh, cyber arms and you know cell phones that cost six hundred dollars and are the size of a shoe you know right. Um, which is in the cyberpunk equipment list. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's funny to look at the prices, you know, like cell phones cost, still cost a huge amount of money, you know, but um, you can, you know, get something else, you know, for super cheap. So yeah, definitely. Anyway, I still have my, my cyberpunk 2020 core book that I bought like back in 93 or something, you know, it's, it's one of my, you know, sort of prized uh, items in my collection, even though I don't, you know, don't play it these days. But, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and you know, Cyberpunk's another one that has like a real kind of deadly combat system. Yeah, which you know, you know as as a you know as someone who really enjoys basic role playing mm-hmm. and Call of Cthulhu, I'm I'm all in favor of that. Yeah, and speaking yeah. of basic role playing, Call of Cthulhu and Cyberpunk, there's oh. Punk Town. Yeah, that, which is another one coming out. That Kickstarter. Yeah, how's um, that going? Well, they're uh, they've been quiet mostly. They they keep like sporadic updates, maybe like every two months. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like right now they're waiting on art assets. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping with our little um, with our little hexing voodoo sort of stuff we have on the show, where <laughs> if we talk about a Kickstarter, it either releases information or releases. Yes. I'm kind of hoping Punk Town comes out soon because that's. <laughs> You know, it's it's a great combination. It's it's like it sort of feels kind of like a, a Shadowrun esque, and, and except mm. instead of like you know shamanistic and arcane magic coming back, it's really really terrible Cthulhu Lovecraft yeah. lore magic coming back, which is it just that that touches me in all the right places. <laughs> it's a good touch. Yeah, yeah. There was a GURPS source book called Cthulhu Punk mm. uh, back in the '90s that that treads similar ground, and it's it's it works really well. It's definitely a peanut butter and chocolate kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like killer killer uh, apps that you know basically would download the Necronomicon into your brain, right? In, you know, milliseconds, and you know, and just make you go crazy instantly. Exactly. Yeah. No. Good stuff. Yeah. And then Savage Worlds uh, has a cyberpunk setting that's also its own game, I think. Yeah, it comes in two different flavors. I believe so. Yeah. And I've got the uh, I've got the Savage Worlds version. Mm-hmm. It's Interface Zero. Yeah. And from what I've read, it's it's pretty it's pretty much like if you don't want to go find a secondhand copy of Cyberpunk 2020 and you want to run like a more contemporary system for your sort of classic cyberpunk. Yeah, it's it's a good one to go with. It's definitely purest cyberpunk. Yeah. And yeah, there's. They, uh, I think Interface Zero really, uh, or at least the most recent release, which I've, uh, well, maybe not the most recent, I think I have one behind, they were, I think they were pimping out, like, Interface Zero 2.0, which is... <laughs> That's kind of funny. Kind of, <laughs> kind of an interesting oxymoron there. Yeah, right. But, um, yeah, no, uh, they, uh, in the, uh, in this in the core book, they, uh, they integrate, you know, a lot of our common, you know, technology into the system. So, you know, you have like TCP IP and, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, they incorporate, you know, various aspects of our current internet culture mm. and, you know, they sort of mesh that with, um, with alter, with augmented reality and alternate reality. And it's, it's sort of interesting, but it's really, really crunchy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it's sort of daunting for someone who's not all that techie to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, you know. Cyberpunk uh, 2020 went through a similar evolution where you know in its core book format, it's um, it's very much kind of William Gibson, uh, mm. Blade Runner sort of, you know, it's um, what does it mean to be human, uh, techno shock kind of thing. And then by the by the end of the game's run, there'd been all these like sort of tech oriented supplements. Yeah. And so you know I've seen people say basically you know if you play core Cyberpunk 2020, you're playing Blade Runner. If you play Cyberpunk 2020 with all the supplements, you're playing Appleseed. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, way more sort of embracing the tech. Definitely. Everyone's got you know a big gun and lots of cybernetics and you know. Oh, like Ghost in the Shell or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Definitely. Yeah, so definitely one of my favorite genres that I never play. So likewise, <laughs> yeah. But hopefully we'll we'll get some Shadowrun in at some point. Definitely not too distant. Shadowrun or Punktown? Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. So on to the next genre. And speaking of you know post-apocalyptic being and cyberpunk being genres that maybe have had their heyday in the past. Right. I think espionage is another one. Yeah, that's one that's really fallen off the radar. Yeah. Like I. I'd say until this month when, uh, when the, um, yeah, when the OSR, you know, March Madness, 30 mm. Days of Blogging came out, I never considered the concept of an espionage-focused <laughs> RPG. Like, that just, that just never occurred to me. I'm, you yeah. know, there's, there's, like, high fantasy, and there's cyberpunk, and then yeah. there's spacefaring, and there's all, you know, there's Pendragon and a bunch of other stuff, but... Yeah. Like spies, oh. Oh. yeah, and and your sort of default Shadowrun mo- mode is very espionagey. That's true, you yeah. Know, where you're you're infiltrating a you know a corporation or some other target, and you're you know so you got your you got your hacker and you got your locksmith and you got you know your gun you know money yeah. and everything. But yeah, there's there's then there's the pure espionage genre, which back in the '80s had like major games like James Bond 007 and Top Secret. Mm. Not related to the Zucker Brothers film of the same name, but uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> but no, the it was like a major genre, and um, one of the first RPGs I ever picked up was oh, another one called Ninjas and Super Spies, uh, which was a Palladium game, which I mostly bought for the ninjas part, of course, because the espionage genre was already fading at the time I got it. Uh, um, but you know, it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting genre because it's very gameable. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of Shadowrun's not the only one. I mean, that this your sort of default espionage, cinematic espionage, right? Um, is pretty much, you know, a typical RPG scenario. Yeah, definitely. Really. You know, I mean, it, it's pretty. You know, it's mission focused. It's you know target oriented. It's ensemble. Yeah. You know, I mean, it it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but I I just think with the with the end of the Cold War people just weren't as interested in it anymore yeah you know we uh we sort of lost out on you know mission impossible ended up you know just not existing anymore and james Mm. bond kind of switched over to being more of an action hero than an espionage hero right yeah i mean you know uh, everything i've heard from james bond purists reacting to the the latest round of movies yeah especially the last one was just kind of revulsion right like so yeah we've sort of we've sort of left the concept of like cold wars and espionage behind us a bit and we're really focusing on you know we have a target of a bad guy and we're gonna go kill him right and so there's not really there's not really too much room in that sort of mindset at least consumer wise for uh for espionage games i guess and that's kind of sad yeah and there really aren't many war on terror rpgs out there are there 
Maybe it's just like too soon. Maybe. I, I don't think so, though. <laughs> no, it's, it's been a while. Yeah. Um, I'm going to make a War on Terror like RPG campaign. Right. That would be great. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, but much like Cyberpunk, I think we're seeing a return, maybe, uh, in terms of treating it like... Um, a retro genre mm. so like the um tinker taylor soldier spy movie yeah you know or argo you know like kind of going back to the sort of golden age of you know espionage and the cia and you know sort of um playing in that sandbox you know definitely and so the the sort of flagship for that right now is knight's black agents mm. which you know, Trail of Cthulhu is all well and good, but if there's one game that makes me want to run the gumshoe system, mm. it's Knight's Black Agent. Agents. Okay. Because basically, it's another one of those sort of hyper-focused concepts, mm. which is that you're all uh, ex-spies. You've all sort of burned out one way or another. Mm-hmm. And you discover that the world's government, governments, I should say, mm-hmm. are being run by vampires. I'm speechless. <laughs> and the really cool thing about it is that the game leaves it up to the GM to decide what vampires are like. Hmm. There's no one vampire, um, you know, stat block. Right. Right. So they can be kind of a Nosferatu type or they can be more of the sort of, you know, suave, you know, right. type that can mix with people. Uh, you know, are they damaged by sunlight maybe maybe not and so a big part of the game the the initial part of the campaign is discovering the vampire's weaknesses and you know hmm. what you can you know how to go after them and so forth yeah meanwhile the vampires are coming after you because they know that you know yeah exactly and there's this whole uh, one of my favorite uh terms of the last year or so is um the uh, the way you build the campaign which is called the conspiramid because it's the pyramid of conspiracies that will lead you up to the to the ranking vampires at the oh, very top. Oh man, yeah. And uh, all accounts is that it's a, just this amazing game. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's like guaranteed dynamite, basically. Cool. You know? So, yeah. That sounds like fun. I know. Another one on the list. Yeah, right. This, this list just keeps getting longer. We shouldn't. We should not do a part three. We'll never. <laughs> no. We'll never do anything else it's again. It's just painful. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Anyway, so but yeah, um, I'm not really aware of any other espionage-focused games out there right now. But with the sort of kudos that that Nice Black Agents has been getting, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more. A little bit of resurgence. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, you can play it, you know, I think um, you can play it modern day or you can do a kind of retro thing, you know. So, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot there. Definitely. Yeah, and, um, you know, there's this, there's this one, see, they're working on this one mega campaign that when it comes out, I might have to just finally go for it, but it's called the Dracula Dossier. Oh. And it's basically, goes off the supposition that the novel Dracula uh-huh. is a redacted um, nonfiction book. Hmm. It was written by Bram Stoker, who was an agent, mm. you know, uh, with the British Secret Service. Right. And he wrote, you know, his notes about Dracula, and then they redacted it, and so he turned it into a novel. Hmm. And so the Dracula Dossier is basically the unredacted novel like physically like yeah. you actually buy that and you give it to your players 
and they can read it and start to glean information from it. Interesting. Yeah. And then there's all these marginal notes that sort of reveal that periodically the British Secret Service has tried to uh, turn Dracula to their own uh, purposes. Hmm. Uh, and the, the, you know, 1890 incident was just one of several. Huh. And they've always ended in disaster in some way or another. Awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, I just love stuff like that, where, like, the campaign itself is, like, one big handout. You know? Yeah, definitely. It's amazing. So anyway, moving on to space opera slash science fantasy. Ah, yeah. Space mm. opera, science fantasy. So... Yeah, we, um, we've spoken about BESM, and that's sort of uh, big, well, big Eye, Small Mouth, for those of you who aren't with acronyms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that's sort of a genre, or that's a system kind of sort of like GURPS. You can sort of play it with, you know, just about anything that you can really think of. You know, very varied, but the, uh, the examples that they put through on their book are for us, you know, a space operatic, mm. you know, gaming style. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there's, plenty of, uh, there's plenty of places you can take it from. You know, you've got your uh, you've got your Star Blazers and your Tenchi like Tenchi Universe and yeah Robotech just, yeah Robotech this is and, you know kind of mecha kind of space opera yeah like Cowboy Bebop Outlaw Star yeah yeah just I think there was actually a BESM space opera sourcebook mm. if I remember correctly yeah yeah I mean you know anime uh, especially sort of classic seventies eighties anime that's, yeah definitely that's just, you know space opera all over the place so, yeah yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's been uh, sort of the, uh, what would you call it, the uh, perennial space opera right. RPG, which is Star Wars. I mentioned uh, a little bit with Breach World that it was originally this um, D6 dice pool based system. Mm-hmm. Never got a chance to play it, but, you know, by all accounts, it was a good one. Right. Then uh, Wizards of the Coast got it, uh, got the license. So there was a D20 version, which I've heard not so good things about. Yeah, likewise. Because it's sort of trying to bolt a class level system onto, you know, Star Wars. Though that did sort of succeed with the uh, with some of the video games with um, mm. Bioware's uh, Knights of the Old Republic. Mm. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, that's that's that was also kind of like a tried and true process where they'd already sort of done similar things with uh, Neverwinter Nights and Baldur's Gate. Yeah. So um, yeah, it seems like uh, those D and D games really work well with computers, but I imagine. There wasn't really too much uh, favorable opinion on seeing Star Wars as a D20 system. Yeah, and just, you know, um, I, I think they didn't really do, you know, Jedi powers very well. Yeah. Stuff like that. So, but then again, I've heard that with the D6 system, uh, Jedi could just completely dominate a game. So, Which is, yeah. it's that That's the problem you have whenever you're trying to adapt a licensed property that has, you know, your, your um, rare or, you know unique even right. sort of badass hero mm-hmm. who gets to be able to do everything because they're the hero. Right. I mean, if there was ever a Harry Potter uh, RPG, you'd have similar issues. Definitely. You know, where uh, it's like, well, some some people are just more badass than others in those stories, so what are yeah. you going to do about that? You know? Hide. <laughs> Get them while they're not looking. You pull a Call of Cthulhu and you hide. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a Harry Potter Call of Cthulhu mashup. I like it. <laughs> Damn it. I'm sure it's out there. Um, anyway, and then the current uh, licensee for Star Wars is Fantasy Flight. And so if you know you have any passing familiarity with Fantasy Flight, you know it's a deluxe job. Because yeah. they always do a deluxe job. And it's uh, 
the current game out is called Edge of Empire. Right. I know they're working on a second one that's um, set more in like kind of the core system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I guess to me, all I really know about this, um, you know, one way or the other, is that because some people like it, some people don't, is that it uses its own dice. Its own dice. Yes. So I mean, they're you know they're they're shaped in the usual polyhedral ways. Oh, okay. But they have oh, they have. symbols on them. They oh. don't have numbers. Hmm. And you you roll you know different combinations of these dice, and then the way the symbols match up um, somehow determines the result of your action. Huh. That sounds sounds like a well fantasy flight. They do uh, do they do board games as well? Yeah. That sounds somewhat like a. Like what that kind of company would do with yeah, yeah. proprietary dice and yeah, I mean they did uh they did the third edition of Warhammer Fantasy, which was also very divisive because that turned it into very much kind of a board gamey sort of thing. Right, there were lots of cards and dice involved with that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this one like you know some people are like, well, it's cool because it gives the game its own flavor, and other people are like, oh, but I don't want to have to learn this whole you know symbol system. Yeah, you know, which I mean that seems like legit complaint. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it didn't turn me off the game to read that. But right. I could see why some people might not be into it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, and then, yeah, I mean, science fantasy. Uh, so, you know, I pretty much already covered this under post-apocalyptic. But you have games like Rifts and um, Gamma World that are these sort of weird crossovers where Rifts in particular, you know, uh, giant mecha versus dragons versus, mm. you know unnameable horrors from beyond you know and, oh lovely oh yeah i yeah. mean it's it's you know or you know just hanging out at a at a hotel bar with like a titan and a wizard you know and a godling or something you know i mean it's these weird uh juxtapositions mm. that yeah, make it fun definitely you know? so i've you know I, I think i've played more science fantasy than i've played science fiction just because yeah. of rifts and uh also just because of the fun factor involved, mm-hmm. you know, but I haven't played much space opera. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. I think uh, I think the closest I've come to space opera is actually uh, the GURPS game you ran, mm-hmm. which is you know wasn't really operatic as much as it was just sort of mission based. Yeah, yeah. One of my you know long term campaign wish list things is you know some kind of military space opera like Wing Commander style thing, uh, you yeah. know, where you're you're all on one big carrier and you've got your fighters and you go out and you know, there's some kind of war alien going on. Yeah. Yes. I'd do alien. <laughs> is that really space opera or is that? I'd make it into it. You make it into space yeah. opera. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. 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 That's another one that, um, deserves its own RPG with decent mechanics, I think. Definitely. Cause, uh, yeah, you've mentioned that there was a, uh, there was a bad one before that turned someone one, close yeah. to you off of gaming. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's... I think after uh, after Colonial Marines, I think uh, I think Alien deserves a, uh, a decent, you know, gaming representation. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's probably out there right now. I'm, I'm sure someone has made an Alien RPG. Probably, yeah. yeah. Probably. I mean, how could they not, really? Right? Yeah. All right. So then, um, uh, the next genre, I mean... This is sort of quibble territory here because you could say this genre, which is anime, uh-huh. is that even a genre? That's a that's a good question. I mean, um, there's definitely sort of that aspect of uh, of anime in uh, 
as a genre, just like an overreaching genre, mm. you know, with various players. Like, you know, you, you've got your fantasy and then you have your science fiction and then anime is just sort of like shunted a little bit in another direction, I guess, mm -hmm. in people's minds. Mm -hmm. Not that that's like necessarily a bad call or anything because it really is kind of its own flavor. Like if, yeah, you, yeah. if you watch like Lord of the Rings and then you watch right, like... I don't know, record of Lord of War. Uh -huh, yeah, you'll you'll get two completely, two different flavors of you know. That's true. Of that type of story. That's true. Um, so you know perhaps if like your if your players are you know fans of anime and you know really want to kind of like get into that style of a game. Yeah. You know, chances are, those will be different players than the ones that really want to play like a Dungeons and Dragons, or a Magic World, or mm. an Iron Kingdoms because they're just. There's, I suppose, different expectations, I guess, mm -hmm. in the uh, in the system. So, you know, for for that sort of genre, I'd say that BESM is a is a pretty good call. Yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, there's there's your uh, there's your subsets like uh, mm. like made RPG, which <laughs> right. is uh, all kinds of uh, ten different kinds of crazy, <laughs> piled under layers and layers of randomly generated tables. Absolutely, and and so, but yeah, the funny thing, uh, if unless you're doing something specific like made, yeah, um, is that to do an anime RPG, and this is what how some people have argued it. They're, mm. they're kind of saying like, well, that's like saying you have a television RPG, you know, uh, you have to make it universal enough. Yeah, you know, so BESM, BESM first edition. Uh, was pretty slim. It was a slim volume. Hmm. I think it was maybe 6,400 pages, something like that. Yeah. But then they're like, oh, crap. Well, we got to do this and we got to do that. So there were a bunch of supplements. And so those right. all got combined into the second edition, which was like twice the length. Yeah. And then third edition, which um, technically exists, but came out almost exactly simultaneous to the uh, company going out of business. Yeah. So it never really got out there. Um, that was even bigger. That yeah. was like Pathfinder size in terms of the rule book, you know. Yeah, and it just got more and more uh, detailed. Definitely, and in uh, in in third edition because I bought it for myself for GM's Day. Nice. Thank you, Drive Through RPG. Yay. Um, <laughs> yeah, they 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 posit the uh, the existence like the official setting of BESM is now the anime multiverse. That's right. Yeah. So you've you've got your you know you've got your spacefaring anime crossing over with your post-apocalyptic trigun planet anime crossing mm -hmm. over with your I don't know, um, God, uh, Higurashi when they cry, mm. crossing over with um, Rurouni Kenshin, crossing over with um, I'm, I'm just gonna stop listing anime. <laughs> Space Dandy crossing over with <laughs> Astro Boy, crossing over with Astro Boy, Steam Boy, yeah, <laughs> any other boy, Kogias, yeah, it just. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure exactly how they execute it. Maybe it's, you know, through some sort of, like, hub world. Kind of uh, like if you're, like, for those familiar with Chrono Trigger, you've got, like, the end of time where you uh, can go just about anywhere. Huh. Um, maybe it does something like that. Maybe it does something different. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's... I guess if you look at, like, 3rd edition and, like, see that they have that, you know, represented, maybe anime can be its own genre now. Right, right. Yeah, it's entirely possible. I yeah. mean, uh, uh, GURPS did a similar thing with 4th edition where they made their official world the infinite world system. Right. Which is like, um, there's basically like a time police kind mm. of thing, and they and they recruit people from different alternate realities yeah. and then send them off to do missions. So, but there's, a, there's another system out that was um, out around the same time as BESM, kind of went away like BESM did, hmm. uh, but it's coming back via Kickstarter, of course. Oh. 
called the Open Versatile Anime System, or OVA. Ah, clever. Yes. Um, and uh, apart from looking really nice, because they got some really you know top-notch uh, anime style artists to, yeah. to do the illustrations, um, my understanding is that they're trying to keep it a lot lighter than BESN. They're not. They're trying to not go in that sort of overly crunchy direction, you oh. know. So. Um, might be worth just kind of keeping keeping a finger on the pulse of that. Yeah, you know? I would be interested in checking that out. Yeah. Because BESM is super crunchy. It is super crunchy, yeah. yeah. Um, I still have yet to run it, but, you yeah. know, hope springs eternal, guys. <laughs> That's right. And so uh, sort of segueing into that, Japanese systems, we've mentioned MADE. We've mentioned MADE. There's also, uh, again, thanks to Kickstarter, uh, Ryutama, mm-hmm. which is being released, which is uh, represented as a sort of um, Studio Ghibli style, um, like mm-hmm. fantasy uh, RPG, where you know the focus isn't combat or defeating monsters, it's like solving problems. And it's sort of like a, I believe, um, it's sort of like a traveling anime. Where you go from a city, from place to place, and solve problems, hmm. and um, you know, very—I I don't want to call it kid-friendly, even though it is. Mm. It's just um, sort of lighthearted, I guess. No real, um, no massive like craziness. I think right. it's—it's it's been a while since I've read the uh, the specifics of it, but it seems like the uh, like there's there's an in-game representative of the dungeon master mm. who. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, who kind of like creates the plots for players mm. to go through so that they can they can resolve them and he can write stories about them and that's sort of kind of like the conceit of the universe, I guess. That's cool. Which is yeah, it's it's kind of nice. Does he does he look like a little wizened little short man with bald head and long gray hair? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's you know, someone someone comes at him and he's like a total master in like ninjutsu or kung fu or jiu <laughs> right. Totally takes him down. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that because that's I, I like that that's it's taking a you know radically different approach. Yeah, um, and it should be interesting. And then now I'm uh, totally regretting my my lack of uh, research on this because I'm just now remembering there's another one, mm. uh, and I'm completely blanking on the name. But I think you're aware of it as well. It's like sort of the opposite of Ryutama, where it's very high-powered and you're actually meant to go through an entire campaign in one session. Oh, it eludes me. Yeah, yeah. well, I'll put it in the show notes. But yeah, um, yeah it's, it's just interesting to see these Japanese RPGs that are getting translated now and, and how radically different they are. You know, they're not... Um, they're not as hidebound as sort of the RPG traditions, I think. Yeah, they're not, they're not really clones of, you know, what we have existing. They're sort of these you know, individual original takes on, you know, what what do people really want to act out? What kind of stories do they want to tell? Exactly. I mean, and, it's sort of what you would expect, taking something from one uh, sort of culture-slash-language base yeah. and putting it into an into another fairly different culture-slash-language, uh, you know, situation. Yeah. And then seeing what comes out, you would expect it to be, you know, somewhat different. Definitely. You know, so it's, it's kind of cool to see it coming back our direction now and kind of seeing it's almost like a game of telephone it's like you know yeah oh that's what you came up with you know good job there yeah well done yeah yeah absolutely so anyway, anyway. oh wait you had one that uh oh that i didn't that want to induces mention. shutters in you yeah so there's a speaking of an anime or an anime rpg that hasn't been translated yet due to um copious amounts of Rule 34 and Squick <laughs> is, uh, God, was it Zetai Redo, I think it is? Yeah. 
Um, the less said about it, the better. But if you're really interested in learning about it, um, go to 1D4chan and oh, look that up. Oh, man. Because they censor the pictures there. Okay, good. And it is... Um, all I'll really reveal about it is that um, about a year ago, maybe maybe two, maybe two and a half years actually, I was playing in a, um, a D&D 3.5 campaign. Oh, God. And there, um, my, my DM had a book of, um, like, sexual magic. Okay. Yeah. Was that's it, was, wait, was like it, an actual source book for... The, for the book of erotic fantasy? That. Yeah. <laughs> the most notorious 3.5 source book. Yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yes, this is... <laughs> this is that, but cranked up to anime. Oh, man. So, um... Yeah, I I know next to nothing about the system except what's been revealed on various wiki sites. Um, I don't want to learn anything more about the system except for what's been written on various wiki sites. Yeah. But yeah. if you know if you have a group and that floats your boat, you should look it up and never say that I referred it to you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and there's there's uh, an English language equivalent of that, which is uh, the game that shall not be named, so I'm not going to name it. Okay. But I'll tell you about it after the recording. Sounds good. All right, so anyway, moving on. Moving swiftly on. Palette cleanser. So um, I just uh, I thought we, uh, as we were kind of winding down here, we can just sort of poke our heads into uh, some of the... Um, less well-trafficked corners ah, of, yes. uh, of genres. So, for example, we've got different flavors of fantasy. So, like, mm-hmm. you've got D&D, which has sort of become its own genre at this point. Definitely. And we and we covered that last time. Um, but And then, you know, you've got things like Pendragon. Right. Uh, or there's another game called Dragon Warriors, uh, which is from the 80s but had a re-release a few years ago, that are kind of like more like um, um, fairy tale or mythic fantasy mm. Where you know you, you kind of want a low magic uh, sort of campaign. Most of the PCs or all of the PCs are going to be human. You have a more strongly medieval flavor, yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but then you've got these other uh, flavors of fantasy as well. So like there's there's a sort of weird or dark fantasy, mm-hmm. and sort of the the poster boy for that these days is a game called Lamentations of the Flame Princess, which uh, is basically a D and D basic D&D retro clone. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's uh, more or less compatible with with, you know, basic uh, 80s era D&D. Yeah. Uh, but the way it's presented is sort of like, you know, if you enjoy uh, Cannibal Corpse album covers uh, as, you know, uh, an art form, there's a lot of that kind of stuff definitely in the uh, in the books, you know, both in terms of actual art and and, and, uh, core and, and system. Yeah. Okay. You know, uh, like the the titular flame princess, um, you know, keeps getting like throughout throughout the releases in the in the line. Mm-hmm. She there's they, there's uh, sort of recurrent uh, pictures featuring her mm-hmm. and adventuring buddies. And sometimes she'll be in some kind of um, you know dire situation, mm-hmm. like getting uh, half dissolved by jelly or something. Ah, and and what they do is from that point on she'll be depicted in further art as having injuries sustained from that situation. Dear so God. like at this point like one of her hands is half melted and she's got a peg leg and you know like all sorts of stuff. So that's kind of great. The uh, the example of play in the um, the core players book uh, features a TPK. Mm. You know, 
total party kill if you don't know that yeah um so you know stuff like that you know it's just like and, and some people you know some people are down with it some people think it's you know kind of ridiculous like it's trying too hard yeah um particularly like the latest releases um uh, i think one of the adventures they put out was actually called fuck for satan oh or something like that well um you know just almost like trying to be shocking sort of thing you know definitely but um yeah you know but if, if you want to do like kind of a dark fantasy thing then that's definitely your yeah your way to go there's a blog i read where a guy was running a, a mega dungeon focus campaign uh set in like kind of a viking um time period mm-hmm. you know like like historical vikings uh who have discovered this you know alien dungeon in the in the you know north sea basically hmm. on an island and they're just going down there and, and raiding it for all it's worth, you know, and, and uh, getting dissolved by the boatload by, you know, killer robots and strange alien entities. So <laughs> That just sounds perfect. Doesn't it, though? Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you've got kind of your Asian fantasy, for lack of a better term. So, um, you know, there was a system out. It's still around, but its uh, heyday was maybe about... 15 years ago it was called legend of the five rings okay it had a tie-in with a collectible card game uh and um which can really go either way yeah yeah like it, and it was heavily heavily made plotted you mm. know like the the card game itself would would advance storylines and then those would be reflected in the rpgs and then vice versa interesting yeah um and it's it was sort of a mashup you know it was like set on an archipelago right Mm -hmm. but it had like a lot of sort of chinese cultural elements as well as japanese and a little bit of some other uh east asian uh, cultures in there but you know there's different clans and you know um you know there's like the samurai and then there's the you know the the sort of wizard type uses uh scrolls to cast their spells you know and that sort of thing and um that actually goes all the way back there was a AD&D supplement in the late 80s called Oriental Adventures that was uh, <laughs> kind of racist incredibly dated in its title but otherwise uh, yeah yeah <laughs> um, no but it uh, definitely um, succeeded in in sort of conveying a, a very different flavor it was sort of the first um, you know it predated Dark Sun by a few years and it was it was okay. sort of the first uh, time you saw like an official AD&D game world that really uh, played around with inverting and subverting tropes and, you know, hmm. presenting a different way to play D&D even though you're using the same rules. Definitely. Kind of thing, you know. Nice. Yeah, and uh, and Legend of the Five Rings, I mean, I I know there are people who are just completely nuts about it. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's, it's a good game. You mm-hmm. know, it's definitely a good game. And then um, there is a game called Exalted, which is sort of anime... Uh, inflected you know okay. it's it's not overtly anime but it it has a lot of you know like kind of final fantasy uh, yeah. type stuff in it gigantic swords and you mm-hmm. know super you know really powerful you know basically your your characters are, are scions of of deities essentially okay. you know and your uh, the the game world is basically set at the beginning of reality hmm. you know when everything's still very elemental and yeah. you know still forming you know definitely so. Yeah, it's it's almost like mythic, legendary, you know, yeah. fantasy. So, uh, I don't know if there's any other flavors of fantasy you can think of. Gosh, um, not offhand. Yeah. And uh, we're jumping towards the hour mark, so we should probably move on to our. Uh, I think you're right. Our uh, shout-outs to uh, some indies. Absolutely. Out there. 
So I think the biggest indie game right now is probably Fate. Yeah. Um, they had a massively successful Kickstarter in 2012, I think, and um, so right now it's getting a lot of play. You know, and yeah. it comes in two varieties. One is kind of a a big, bigger, chunkier toolbox kind of core book, like this, you know, akin to say GURPS or BRP. Definitely. Where it's like, hey, take this and do all kinds of crazy crap with it. Yeah. And then there's a slimmer volume, which is Fate Accelerated Edition, which is maybe a little more on the Savage World side of things. Mm-hmm. Like, um, hey, you don't worry as much about mechanics. This one's for you. Right. Sort of thing. So, haven't played it. Um, I'm intrigued by it. I know people who swear by it. Yeah. I know other people who have tried to get into it and just can't. Yeah. Um, it it you know it's sort of typical of indie games nowadays which is that much like the sort of japanese rpgs Mm. it's not afraid to sort of play around with assumptions of what makes an rpg right you know and so some people like that some people are really not you know wanting that in their gameplay (laughs) you know like they're perfectly happy with sort of traditional rpgs so um you know i say i'm probably on the fence about it until i actually get to play it Definitely. You know, I've owned a couple. I've owned Spirit of the Century. I've looked at Dresden Files. Those are both fate-based games. Mm. I wasn't like, you know, I didn't run screaming from them. Right. You know, but uh, it's it definitely seems to be one of those systems where you kind of have to play it in order to form a, a real judgment on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the next system, uh, something that I haven't played yet, but um, I hear talk about, and one of my friends actually is desperate to get me to into a game of it, is this lovely game called Kill Puppies for Satan. <laughs> Not a Lamentations of the Flame Princess title, though. No. No, I was. I, it was kind of funny that you uh, yeah. that you brought that up. Yeah. But um, no, apparently, according to uh, some um, some after reports of some gameplays that I've I've heard specifically of the uh, the one included in the core book. Mm is all you do is try to be the worst people imaginable. Um, so, you know, you go score drugs and you, you you have unprotected sex and you, like, burn down places to, to try to just achieve whatever nefarious goal you have in mind. And um, I, I don't even know how you win. It just sounds like such an amazing system that I... Uh, yeah, if you... Uh, we'll put it in the show notes, but... Um, yeah. It's it's worth taking a look at. It's very inexpensive. Uh, yeah. Super indie publisher who just has like downloads on their website. Right. Essentially, uh-huh. I, I think it was like one of the first indie games I was aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with a name like that. You yeah. Know. <laughs> Uh, next up is Everyone is John, which, um, another game I haven't touched yet, but a, uh, another friend, a different one this time, tried to get me to play that, where, uh, essentially, everyone is one character named John, and you are all facets of his multiple personalities. Wow, brilliant, yeah. So, uh, every character, or, or every player has a goal. Yes, you I roll dice to, yeah. you, you roll dice to take control of John. And uh, you score points by getting closer to your objective, and every time like something scene-changing happens, you roll to see if you maintain control or someone else takes over. And um, so it's just sort of one of those comedic, terrible person RPGs that you know are just sort of coming out of the woodwork nowadays mm-hmm. and just being really unusual. So yeah, that's kind of another one which is more of uh, seems more of like a like a Friday or Saturday Saturday night like one shot when everyone's drinking, <laughs> right? Rather than you know something to uh, play seriously for like an extended campaign. Right. I can't see getting eighty sessions out of that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, lastly, is a is a game I actually played at Bubonicon uh, mm. a few years back called Lady Blackbird, which um, sort of stuck with me because it has a very interesting uh, D6 dice mechanic, mm. where every player has a set pool of D6s. Um, you put them in the center of the table when you use them, and it sort of becomes a community pile to take from. Okay. Uh, it's it's sort of space operatic, at least in the uh, in the playtest or given by uh, yeah. given for conventions. Yeah. Um, everyone's given a character. Everyone's given like sort of a a little bit of a backstory and kind of um, special powers that they can use, but just once. Right. And um, yeah, just you know, basically made off of storytelling. Uh, the GM gives you the setting and what what's happening, and you as players use your character's backstories to generate, you know, problems and solutions mm. and, you know, basically work to get Lady, ba- Lady Blackbird to her skate pod. Um, <laughs> right. So right. it's, uh, it's just, it's an interesting system that, uh, that I really, uh, I really could see going back to just to, uh, uh, it's, it's another sort of short form. Yeah. Like there's, um, there are options for like increasing level ups. It actually sort of feels um, now thinking back about it, it kind of feels a little bit like Burning Wheel, uh, um, but just like a much lighter, uh, a much lighter uh, crunch system, I guess you could yeah, say. Yeah. yeah. Um, but definitely worth checking out for uh, for anyone who wants to. It's uh, another one of those places that has a free PDF download. Oh right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, absolutely, cool. uh, absolutely interesting and worth checking out. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it seems typical of like a lot of indie game design, which is sort of. That's why I call Pendragon sort of the granddaddy of indie games because yeah. it's like you see a lot of these indie games that are hyper focused on producing one game experience and they don't they're not trying to be all things to all people. Exactly. So like there's a game called The Mountain Witch where you're just a group of samurai going up the side of a mountain to kill a witch. Yeah. And you can play it over and over again and it'll be different each time. Right. But it's the same scenario. Exactly. It, it's not like the mountain changes or anything. Like right. That, you know. But the way the game plays out is going to be different. Definitely. Um, or you know, dogs in the vineyard. Uh, you're all you know Mormon uh, peacekeepers in uh, frontier Utah in like the 1850s <laughs> and you go from town to town <laughs> writing wrongs you know oh man that's great yeah you know and it's got this it's got these really amazing mechanics that like sort of you know sort of like Pendragon drive this particular type of gameplay yeah you know or uh, one I really want to try is Cthulhu Dark which is basically the rules fit on a single sheet of paper oh is that with uh, you have like 2d6 or 3d6 and you, like... your character sheet is is like, dice. Yeah. That's it. And, uh, and uh, you know, the way those dice are um, arranged basically mm. tells what your current sanity and health levels are. Right. And um, it's great because the combat rules are if you try to fight a mythos monster, you die. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a fan. Yeah. And also you can stave off insanity by destroying evidence of what's causing your insanity. Oh, so that's... if you read a tome, you can start ripping pages out and throwing them in a fire and uh, that'll, that'll stave off your insanity. <laughs> so it's, it's great, you know, and um, it, like I say, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like one of those party games almost where, you know, if, if you want to have kind of a Lovecraftian, you know, experience, but you don't want to like bust out the Call of Cthulhu character sheets and rules and stuff. Yeah. You play some Cthulhu Dark. I mean, the the rules are like board game rules, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's you super know, light. Super light. Super easy. Um. Yeah. So I mean, that's sort of the fun thing about indie games, and they're not all light. I mean, you mentioned Burning Wheel. Yeah, definitely. And uh, and then they put out a um, almost like Burning Wheel Dungeon World kind of thing, a game mm. called Torchbearer, which is sort of like takes Burning Wheel. And focuses it towards kind of old school dungeon delving, right? Uh, 
you know, priorities, but it's still as crunchy as Burning Wheel. Yeah. You know, so it seems like indie games kind of go in one of the two directions. Definitely. Either super light or super crunchy. But yeah, that's, I mean, indie games are kind of a whole other genre to themselves, really. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would I would probably put them into a genre before I put anime into a genre. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point, actually. Yeah. So I think, yeah, that, that is sort of the conclusion of our two-part spiel. Yeah, that kind of, uh, as soon as we discover more systems to talk about, we'll, we'll bring them up. And torture ourselves with. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, if uh, we've had plenty to talk about these last couple episodes, but uh, we do love to answer listener queries, and particularly any of these games we've been talking about you want to hear more about or you want to offer some weighty opinions on, uh, please feel free to contact us through any of our various channels, which are elucidated at the end of the episode. Absolutely. And um, do we have any final thoughts? Uh, let's see. Mouse Guard exists, and it costs $100 on Amazon. <laughs> you know what the worst part is? I actually owned the core book at one time. Oh, man. And I bought it like at, at you know, sticker price. Yeah. And then I gave it to a friend who really wanted to run it, and she still has it. So, I hope. But she's very far away now, so I'll is... probably never see it again. No, yeah. Um, there's just there's too many too many games out there, really, to, uh, to cover in, in even two long episodes. Yeah, definitely. But you know that's why we're here, and that's why we uh, that's why we keep doing this. That's why we're able to keep doing this. That's right. <laughs> we'll never run out. No. Because yeah, I mean, I, I guess my final thought is uh, there's always this moment when if I'm uh, gaming with someone who's new to the hobby, mm. I see that moment in their eyes when they realize that there's more to the hobby than just two or three games. Yeah. Like they've heard of D and D and they're playing Call of Cthulhu, but wait a minute. There's actually way more than that. Yeah. Like, there's even five different versions of Call of Cthulhu. And there's all these books on your shelf. What are they? What are they? Yes. Yeah, usually that moment is when they see my uh, my bookshelf. And I don't even really have a huge collection, to be yeah. honest. I've worked really hard to keep it uh, a manageable size. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the great things, I think, about um, tabletop gaming is that it's just uh, way deeper than... Than even seasoned hobbyists uh, often think of, I think. Yeah, I think I may be turning into like an RPG hoarder. Like, <laughs> I hear about all these friends who are like giving away all their like their collection of books, and I'm just like, I will take all of them, and I will start a library. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, I, I I've got a picture on my wall of somebody's game collection that's sort of like, uh, you know, maybe someday I'll get to that kind of thing. Yep. You know, because. Uh, yeah, there's something magical about it. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, super last thoughts. Yeah. Uh, Advanced Sorcery releasing next week by uh, yeah. Chaosium for the Magic World setting. Absolutely. Super excited for it, guys. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That's a good plug. A uh, good plug to leave off on, I think. I think so. So. I love you, Chaosium. <laughs> Please don't leave. <laughs> no, they're not going anywhere. And actually, uh, okay, my last plug is uh, check out one of the recent uh, Miskatonic University podcast episodes where they have an interview with Mike Mason. He's the new line editor hmm. uh, for Chaosium. And pretty exciting if you're a Chaosium person at all to listen to him talk about his plans for the future yeah. of uh, development of Call of Cthulhu and other Chaosium products. He's, uh, he's a nice sort of breath of fresh air for the company i think so definitely anyway yay chaosium yeah i feel like we should do like a sign out like keith Olbermann style you know like 
it's been X days since Mission Accomplished. It's been X days since, like, Horror on the Orient Express was supposed to be released. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just uh, try to keep the pressure up. Yep. No, the, the end is in sight for that, I think. I think so, too. Yeah. Anyway. In any case, signing off, this is David Schimpf. And I'm David Larkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>